Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode takes us into the 1960s, as we return to the legacy of World War II and look at a chilly figure who has fascinated historians for decades. He's Adolf Eichmann, the man responsible for the transportation network that took hundreds of thousands of people to the Nazi death camps. In 1960, he's finally captured. We like to delve into the backstories of historical figures in this podcast, but although the basic facts of Eichmann's life are well documented, the question of who he truly was is as loaded today as it was back then. Here to help us unpack Eichmann is special guest Giacomo Lichtner, a cultural historian of modern Europe and Associate Professor of History at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Giacomo has worked extensively on the portrayals of fascism in cinema, and he also lectures about the Holocaust itself. It's Jerusalem, 1961. The courthouse is packed, and the defendant stands in a bulletproof glass box, listening to the charges against him being read out. There are 15 counts of crimes against the Jewish people, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. The man in the glass box doesn't look like a monster. He's every inch the bureaucrat, with his oversized glasses, smart suit, and dark, balding head of hair. He betrays little emotion, but he seems attentive and watchful. During the trial, he takes notes. He gives evidence, speaking in German, which is translated into Hebrew. At a hearing, a judge asks him if he ever felt remorse. Remorse changes nothing, he replies. Remorse is pointless. Remorse is for little children. As he discusses the horrific charges, the prosecutor, Gideon Hausner, portrays Eichmann as less than human. But like everyone else, he has a beginning. He's born Otto Adolf Eichmann in 1906 in Solingen, Germany. His mother Maria is a housewife, while his father, Adolf Karl, is a bookkeeper. When he's seven, the family moved to Linz in Austria, where his father starts a mining company. Coincidentally, Eichmann ends up attending the same high school Hitler went to in the 1900s. Eichmann's not very academic, but he enjoys sports and playing the violin. When World War I ends, he's only 12 years old, but like other Austrians and Germans, Eichmann is affected by the post-war malaise and a general sense of grievance, which builds up and up during the 1920s. After leaving school, he starts training to be a mechanical engineer, but ends up dropping out and takes a series of jobs. By 1927, he's working as a travelling salesman for a petrol company. At this point, the Nazis are a small political party who have been around for about six years. Their main focuses are anti-Semitism and gaining more territory for Germany. In 
The arrival of the Great Depression in 1929 leads to a surge in their popularity as discontented, struggling people try to find a scapegoat. Along with thousands of others, Eichmann joins the Nazi party in 1932. More unusually, he also joins the Nazi paramilitary organization, the SS. The following year, Hitler takes power, and over the next few years, Eichmann will rise through the SD, the intelligence branch of the SS, to play a crucial operational role. Our guest, Giacomo Lichner, sums up his career. He rose to colonel in the SS and became the man in charge of implementing the final solution, that is the, the genocide of uh, Europe's Jewish population, the attempted genocide by the Nazis and their allies. Uh, Eichmann was specifically in charge of overseeing the vast and complex network of transports to the death camps, particularly by train, but not only. And he did, he did this uh, more precisely by holding two roles in the SS. Uh, one, since 1940, he was director of um, Section 4D4 of the Security Service Main Office. That was the section in charge of clearing activities, which meant the expulsion of Jews. Uh, and then a year later, in March 1941, he added another charge as director of Section 4B4. Um, which was called Jewish Affairs. And, and that is the section that, that became in charge of uh, sending Jews to the death camps. Um, he was perhaps not the architect of the final solution, as you sometimes will see him referred to, but certainly I'd say something like the project manager of it. He worked closely with Himmler and Heydrich, who were the head and the uh, deputy head of the SS, uh, to make sure that the final solution advanced and as quickly and efficiently as possible. Um, more specifically, Eichmann's office organized the deportation of hundreds of thousands of Jews from Slovakia, the Netherlands, France and Belgium in 1942, and then from Greece and Italy in 1943. And, um, and then perhaps Eichmann's most infamous, uh, yeah, the, the most infamous part of Eichmann's history during the war came in 1944 when he was sent to Hungary to oversee the deportation of the Jews there. Hungary was an ally of Germany, and so, and yet, until mid 1944, it had not, it had, it had discriminated against and persecuted its Jews, but it hadn't get, given them to the, it, had, it, it hadn't handed them over to the Germans or arranged uh, deportations. In 1944, as the Russians advanced, Germany occupied Hungary, and at that point, the fate of its Jews uh, changed for the worse. Uh, Eichmann was sent to oversee the, the deportations, and he did so with remarkable zeal. He, between, uh, um, between May and July 1944, uh, he was personally responsible for deporting 440,000 Hungarian Jews to Auschwitz, and about two-thirds of these were immediately gassed. So Eichmann, in other words, shared direct responsibility in the murder of one and a half million Jewish people. But understanding who he was is, is a little trickier, is a different matter, because while we all agree on what he did, um, uh, historians and philosophers have kind of argued since Eichmann's trial in 1961 uh, about about kind of who Eichmann was and what he stood for, I suppose, how to interpret him. 
Um, was he a gray, nondescript cog of the Nazi machinery that, that many saw, particularly his trial in Jerusalem, and a, a persona that he carefully tried to portray? Uh, or was he the cold, calculating, sadistic Nazi monster who enjoyed sending people to their death? Uh, was he a nobody, like uh, he himself suggested during his interrogation before the trial? Um, he said, nobody knew me until 1946. Uh, or was he the architect of the final solution? And it, so part of the job is to clear the fog of his own lies and of the assumptions that we have allowed ourselves to accept. Um, one of these being that he was little known, that he wasn't that big a deal. And thankfully, since in the last couple of years, we have a, a, a bit more information, a bit more evidence. Uh, in particular, it's worth singling out a book by Bettina Stangness called uh, Eichmann Before Jerusalem and, and a documentary that came out last year called The Devil's Confession, uh, which is based on the Sassen tapes, the so-called Sassen tapes. And these are tapes that had been known to exist for decades, but had never been made public in which a journalist, German journalist with Nazi sympathies called Sassen visited uh, Eichmann in Argentina. And Eichmann, who was supposed in the mythology to have been hiding, actually speaks very openly about, uh, about his role in the war. So those tapes form the, the, the basis, the evidential basis for the Devil's Confession. And they, they really, I think, uh, fairly dramatically change how we see the character of, of Eichmann. Today, it's understood that Eichmann's persona at the Jerusalem trial was to some extent contrived, calculated to produce an impression of someone who was just following orders, rather than a dedicated ideologue. It's difficult to find much evidence of what Eichmann's personality is truly like in the 1930s. He's essentially a spy for a few years, so it's likely he's skilled at blending in. But some accounts from people who meet him do give us little glimpses into who he is and what motivates him. Giacomo Lichtner discusses these reports of Eichmann and how he actually felt about the Jewish people. Uh, his first job for the SS was uh, in charge of surveillance of Jewish organisations in Germany most specifically of Zionist organizations. And so in that role, he, you know, he, it was part of the role to present himself in a certain way and even to uh, establish relations with some Jewish officials, uh, which normally assessed were forbidden to do, right? Uh, in fact, we know that in 1937, he even managed to get himself invited to the British mandate in Palestine uh, to tour it. So there's, you know, there's a few, as I said earlier, there's a few... Um, there's a bit of a fog to 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 kind of clear, um, but I think that there are some evidence though to to kind of paint the picture of his personality. The first objective public recollection of Eichmann was arguably, as that we know of, is by a Jewish man in 1937 who described him as brisk and smart, quick to become unfriendly when not addressed by his title, which at the time was commissar. So, and I think that that fits with other evidence that comes both from the trial and from the tapes, uh, which show him as uh, proud, uh, fairly pompous, and and my my sense is also uh, insecure, perhaps, uh, kind of in need of reassurance uh, of his of his own importance. Um, there's also some evidence that he could become aggressive quite quick, quite quickly. 
uh, yeah, so that that sort of begin to paint a picture of uh, of the man, I suppose. What we know is that definitely Eichmann was an anti-Semite. There's, you know, we know that from a, a few things, apart from his work during the war, which really, in spite of his um, uh, the remonstrations, really does kind of define him. How else would you, you know, uh, someone who was not anti-Semitic wouldn't collaborate in 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 carrying out a genocide. But I think besides that obvious uh, link, it's uh, the, the fact that he joined the Nazism very early on in 1932 and that he then even moved from Austria to Germany when the Nazi movement was outlawed in Austria in order to, you know, clearly to pursue a career in the Nazi party. Uh, the fact that he joined the SD, which was the security service of the SS uh, in 1934, so also very early. Uh, that was only a year after the SD and the SS had wiped out their internal competition, the SA, in the Night of the Long Knives. So in other words, he went and joined the haunt of fanatical, hardcore Nazis. These are not actions of somebody who's op opportunistic or, or kind of conformist and goes along with the crowd, right? Uh, it's someone who clearly believed. And he's also an early adopter, tells us he he he... He believed in Nazism from the beginning, and he he's not alone in that, right? And uh, Germany takes to Nazism for a variety of reasons, which probably don't want to go into uh, in this particular podcast. But and and then there's also, I think, good evidence that that uh, those views don't change. He could be mistaken. Sometimes he has for uh, an intellectually curious and open-minded man. He he kind of cultivated a bit of a myth that he studied Hebrew and, and Jewish literature. He did do a little bit of that. I take it more as a, a sort of part of his surveillance work and kind of understanding the enemy, but there's no doubt that he saw Jewish people as the enemy. Uh, in fact, he is on record in uh, later after the war in saying that, well, actually, a, a friend of his, a colleague of his, another Nazi criminal, uh, in his own trial, said that Eichmann told him that if they'd killed all 10.3 million, that is Eichmann's figure, uh, Jews, uh, he would consider that, he would have considered that a job well done or the destruction of an enemy. Um, there's also an incident that comes much later in Argentina in the Sassan tapes, and that's discussed in, in, the, in, the, in the documentary I mentioned earlier. You can hear on the tape that Sassen confronts Eichmann, the journalist confronts Eichmann about the number of Jews that were murdered. And um, and then you hear in the tape a, a fly buzzing in, and then you hear a bang, and that's Eichmann's hand killing the fly. And then Eichmann's voice cuts in again and says that fly had a Jewish character. So, you know, that suggests that not only did he buy into the Nazi idea which was you know one of the one of the foundational ideas of nazi ideology that the jewish uh the, the the jews were an inferior race they were subhuman but that he also held on to that view uh well after the war and uh even while in hiding in argentina throughout the 1930s hitler's policies towards the jews grow more and more oppressive what starts with instances of discrimination such as banning Jews from holding civil service positions and introducing quotas for Jewish school students, evolves into the Nuremberg Race Laws of 1935, which segregate Germany's Jewish population. It's harder for Jews to live a normal life or even to hold a job. 
The turning point in Nazi brutality is usually considered to be Kristallnacht in November 1938, the night of broken glass, when the windows of synagogues and Jewish shops are broken and thousands of Jewish men are sent to concentration camps where they are subjected to hard labour and appalling conditions. After this incident, Jews are banned from schools, universities, cinemas and sports facilities. At this stage, Eichmann's role is still largely encouraging or forcing Jews to emigrate to other countries. More than 200,000 German Jews manage to leave before war breaks out. Then in September 1939, Germany invades Poland and World War II begins. Now there's a much larger Jewish population to control, and as they sweep across Europe, the Nazis find it increasingly challenging to implement Hitler's anti-Semitic policies. Eichmann even considers deporting all European Jews overseas to Madagascar. But as the war rages, the Nazis lose interest in this idea, which would require a huge amount of resources. Instead, Jewish people are transported into transit camps and unsanitary, overcrowded ghettos. The people who live there expect to be transported again at some point, either further east or overseas. But in 1941, the focus changes. Gas chambers are used more and more frequently, and in addition to Germany's concentration camp system, four extermination camps are set up. Auschwitz, one of the most notorious concentration camps, becomes a death camp. The people who board trains from the ghettos are never seen again. 1941 is considered the official beginning of the Holocaust, a word which comes from Greek and Hebrew and means burnt sacrifice. Its architect is Reinhard Heydrich, Eichmann's superior. But although Eichmann will later refer to himself as a simple cog in the machine following orders, he knows what's happening in the camps. He's Heydrich's right-hand man, and he's even the secretary at the Wannsee Conference in 1942, a secret meeting where the final solution is discussed with the input of stakeholders, including the Labour, Transport and Economic Ministries, Foreign Office, the Interior Ministry, the SS and the Wehrmacht. The meeting is held to ensure no one gets in the way of the genocide. Giacomo Lichner tells us now about Eichmann's ruthless tactics in the running of the transport network, which reveal more about his mindset. Something that kind of helps us define how he wasn't just signing papers, right? But and he wasn't just a pen pusher, but actually involved in uh, in making the mechanisms work as smoothly as possible. Uh, the, you know, there are a few examples. One uh, one particularly heinous one is that in uh, uh, with with the deportation of the Jews from Greece, which in in many cases took three weeks, right? Uh, Jews from Crete or from Rhodes uh, islands in the far in the southeastern Mediterranean. Um, they, those deportations had to be organized by ferry boat and then bus and then train and then uh and then yeah and then the train to Auschwitz um 
Eichmann came up with mechanisms to make sure that the Jewish communities would pay for their own deportation, which is kind of devilish if you can if you you know if you kind of pass me the use of that word, right? It's like it's it it shows uh, it shows uh, an element that is kind of calculating about his 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 personality and uh, and kind of um, uh, and certainly dedicated to making this work, not just kind of caught in the middle of the machine, right? Um, in Rome, there was another example where the, the trains needed to deport Rome's Jewish population on the 16th of October, 1943. The trains were late. Uh, the deportation was meant to go ahead on the 14th, uh, but uh, the trains were late. And so um, Eichmann and his men, a guy called Danica in Rome, um, devised the rules by which they said to the Jewish community in Rome that if they could provide 50 kilos of gold, they would not be deported. And in and as the as the Jewish community scrambled with the help of many Catholic neighbors and uh, and people they knew and Roman ordinary Romans to find that large amount of of gold, uh, that took the time that it that that it kind of that that yeah that covered the time that it took for the trains to get there and then the Nazis took both the gold and the and the Jews. In Paris, there is a really you know quite upsetting example where. Um, in in the 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 largest uh, raid on on Paris Parisian Jews happened in July 1942. Uh, it's known as the raid of the Veldiv because the Jews were kept in the Velodrome d'Hiver, which is the the indoor cycling track in Paris. And and in that on that occasion, the the Nazis uh, delegated the actual arrest to French police, and the French police either misunderstood or didn't quite know how to handle it. They were meant to just arrest adults. But they didn't. They also arrested the children, and so the Nazi authorities found themselves with more Jews than they had anticipated, and and there are there's an an interesting exchange of telegrams between the authority, the French authorities in Vichy, and uh, and uh, authorities in Berlin to decide what to do with the children, and of course, eventually the children are deported as well, and um, so you know there are, uh, in other words, being in charge of the transport. It's not the same as organizing a train timetable, right? He 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 knows what what what's going on on those trains. He knew, for example, that uh, he that they were stacking 80, 85, 100 people in a carriage that you know couldn't fit them. Uh, he so Eichmann is really at the center of um, of the Holocaust in that in that sense. Although he's not he's not the decision maker in in, in many things. After Heydrich's death, Eichmann continues to implement the plan he put in place. In total, six million Jewish men, women and children die during the Holocaust, an estimated two-thirds of Europe's Jewish population. Millions of other people labelled undesirable also perish as a result of Hitler's policies, among them political prisoners, ethnic Romani, Slavs, Ukrainians, Poles, people with physical or mental disabilities, homosexual men, and criminals. Giacomo gives us some more background on the Holocaust and what makes it so different to other anti-Semitic policies. Heydrich was the deputy head of the SS. He was the man 
charged with uh, in inverted commas inventing the final solution and and this is a, a word that's used uh, as far as i know for the first time by an american historian called raul hilberg he wrote about the the history of the holocaust in the sort of first wave of histories brilliant historians working in the 1960s 1970s um hilberg explains very beautifully how in the history of antisemitism there is a kind of trajectory where societies first said or either said you can't live amongst us uh, as Jews, therefore you're supposed to convert, right? Or you can't live amongst us, which meant expulsion. And there's, yeah, since the 13th century, 12th century, there's a long history of expulsions of Jews in, across Europe. And and he says the the Nazis for the first time just say you cannot live. Um, so it doesn't matter whether you try and escape or uh, leave Germany or or convert. To a Christian religion, for instance, it's your ancestry as Jews that condemns you to die, uh, and that that's the new aspect, right? And so Hilberg says it's not so much an order because there's a lot of debate in amongst historians. Now, where's the order? I mean, we know now that there was coming and goings between Himmler, uh, the Reichsfuhrer, head of the SS, and and Hitler, and sometime between July maybe earlier, between the summer and, and December 1941, the decision was made to progress with a, an organized genocide, right? And with building the death camps and so on. Uh, but uh, Hilberg argues that that more than a direct order, you have a sort of um, uh, a license to invent. So Himmler writes to Heydrich, at one point there's a document that shows that uh, and says, you know, may, do what you need to do to make the final solution occur. Um, so the rest, you know, the death camps, Auschwitz as a different kind of death camp, all the history of how that happens is is new in the history of European antisemitism. Uh, so uh, Eichmann's role is to support Heydrich. And then Heydrich is murdered by partisans in Czechoslovakia in uh, 1942, so quite early on. And, and Eichmann uh, continues the work. Uh, from time to time, Eichmann got to meet Himmler. Uh, the Reichsfuhrer, uh, one of Hitler's two or three kind of main uh, deputies, and he another another kind of uh, little window in Heichmann's character is that he would love to kind of regale his uh, friends and colleagues uh, with you know kind of by proudly talking about his meetings with Himmler and particularly with how Himmler apparently had told him to bulldoze any any kind of obstacle right even whether internal or external to just make the deportations happen in 1944 Eichmann is posted to Budapest where he gains even more notoriety Hitler wants to keep the Holocaust going until the final days of the war and in the space of only three months, Eichmann directly oversees the deportation of nearly half a million Hungarian Jews. As Soviet troops advance, he flees Budapest, heading back to Germany. After the war ends, he's taken prisoner by American soldiers. He gives them a fake name, and before they discover who he is, which likely would have led to his execution, he manages to escape. For another two years, Eichmann hides under another pseudonym in the British-occupied zone of West Germany, and it must have been an uneasy time. His name comes up during the Nuremberg trials as other Nazis involved in running the concentration camps 
including Auschwitz Commandant Rudolf Hoss, implicate him. Finally, in 1950, Eichmann and his family escape Germany for good, taking the same route as Dr. Joseph Mengele, the Nazi physician nicknamed the Angel of Death. And then in 1950, uh, he found a way, like other high-ranking Nazis, um, to escape to South America. With the help of members of the Catholic Church, he uh, was smuggled first to South Tyrol, where he spent time in two monasteries in hiding, uh, waiting for papers. He obtained a Red Cross passport with the pseudonym of Ricardo Clement, and then made his way to Genoa, the port in northern Italy, where he took a, a ship to, to Argentina. Argentina was kind of neutral and friendly to uh, to escapees from Europe. Did, let's say it didn't ask too many questions. In fact, uh, quite interestingly, at Yad Vashem, the archives in Jerusalem, uh, there is uh, Eichmann's entry papers in, in Argentina, as Ricardo Clement, uh, there's a stamp that allowed him to emigrate in Argentina. And it says something like uh, informa uh, insufficient information, right? There's a stamp that says informaciones deficientes, which means that he doesn't have enough information about who he is, but they still let him in, right? And and as I said, that's uh, that was we call that the you know, historians call that the rat line. Uh, it was a, a, an escape line that was used by many high-ranking German officers, including uh, Mengele, the, the infamous uh, uh, science doctor at Auschwitz who experimented on on uh, Jews uh, in the camp, uh, and who was never caught, died in South America at some point in nineteen seventies. So yeah, he got to Argentina that way. He he did a number of jobs there. I think he was a rabbit farmer at one point, but uh, eventually I think he settled as a as an employee in the Mercedes-Benz uh, factory. And that's what he was doing in 1960 when the Israelis captured him. Under the alias Ricardo Clement, Eichmann manages to create a new life for himself. But in the late 1950s, it all comes crumbling down. Eichmann's son, Klaus, becomes close to another expat, a Jewish-German girl called Sylvia Hermann. Her father, Lothar, is a survivor from the Dachau concentration camp, and he starts to grow suspicious. According to some accounts, Klaus is openly anti-Semitic, and he still uses his real surname, Eichmann. Lothar tips off a German official, who in turn contacts Mossad, the Israeli secret service. Giacomo Lichner tells us about Mossad's capture of Eichmann, which has become legendary. Eichmann was recognized by a German-born Argentinian Jew called Lothar Hermann, whose daughter knew Eichmann's son. But that, and that was kind of the, the tip that, that put the operation to capture him into motion. But that tip was only really one piece in a, in a decade-long investigation um, with lots of dead ends, uh, lots of useful clues, lots of work. Um, we know that at the very least, the American Secret Service, maybe even the German, the West German Secret Service, knew pretty much everything about Eichmann's uh, location and, and pseudonym as early as the early 1950s. Why they did not act on it, we, we don't exactly know. Uh, but we know, for example, that a 
West German state prosecutor called Fritz Bauer at one point tipped the Israelis off without using the formal channels that, that two police forces would use uh, because he was worried that pro-Nazi elements or you know, former Nazis or Nazi sympathizers who survived the purge, uh, and there were lots of those, right, in in uh, in West Germany, uh, might then tip off uh, Eichmann and and make and make him make them lose the trail. Um, other work was by investigators like Simon Wiesenthal, who became a kind of legendary Nazi hunter uh, based in Vienna. Uh, Wiesenthal and his team had unearthed documentation, particularly photos of uh, uh, of Eichmann from his wartime record which were essential to identify Clement as Eichmann, right? They, uh, the, the Israelis who eventually went to Argentina to capture Eichmann had this one photo uh, with a profile that showed Eichmann's ear. And, and really that was, you know, that, that was the, the thing that gave him away that when they uh, took um, uh, hidden surveillance of Clement in, in Buenos Aires, they were trying with a hidden camera to take pictures from the same angle so that they could compare the ear it's quite it's quite a, an intriguing part of the story um so they the um, the israelis knew that that this was a good lead i think but also that it was quite a gamble it required breaking international law israel didn't have an extradition um treaty with argentina so it meant sending agents covertly into friendly country and and then kidnapping someone, so breaking the laws of that country. So the 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 decision went all the way to the prime minister, uh, who gave it the go ahead. And they didn't really know that Clement was Eichmann until they got on the ground and were able to to watch him for for a few weeks. Uh, at that point, having ascertained his identity, the Mossad agents, the Secret Service uh, agents from Israel, uh, acted on the 11th of May, 1960. They um, stopped him outside his house uh, upon his return from work. And the story is quite well known, right? They they uh, bungled him into the car and, and and kidnapped him. They then had to hide in a safe house for a few days. Um, there was no real way of removing Eichmann from Argentina safely because uh, El Al, the Israeli airline, didn't have a, a, you know, like a commercial flight to Argentina. But they timed the... They timed the operation so that they could make the most of uh, an official visit by an Israeli delegation invited to Argentina to mark the 150th anniversary of the May Revolution of 1810, which had been kind of the beginning of Argentinian independence, right? So the Argentinians were marking it, inviting foreign dignitaries, and Israel, maybe somewhat surprising, um, accepted this invitation so that they could send uh, an Elal airplane to be in Buenos Aires at the time where they needed to smuggle Eichmann out. They, at that point, the agents, I, I believe, drugged Eichmann, uh, made him seem uh, sleepy or drunk, drunk, and um, disguised him as a LAL crew, drove him into the airport using the crew access, and then flew him out. Now Eichmann is in Jerusalem awaiting trial. The question of whether he should be tried in the country is controversial. Some people think the process is illegal and worry that it could increase anti-Semitism. The country of Israel itself has taken in thousands of Jewish survivors, but it's still ambivalent when it comes to actually recognizing the Holocaust. It's a young state at this time, surrounded by hostile nations, 
and acknowledging the enormity of what happened, and accepting the idea of passivity, that the Jews didn't have the opportunity or the ability to fight back, is difficult. Internationally, interest in Nazi Germany has also dwindled since the Nuremberg trials. But Adolf Eichmann's trial changes all that. It's a chance for survivors to come forward and speak their piece, and tell stories not only of victimhood, but of courage, resilience and resistance against all odds. It becomes not only a trial, but a history of the Holocaust. Even in his letter of clemency, Eichmann does not express any guilt, referring to himself as a mere instrument. Giacomo Lichtner tells us about the trial. So Eichmann, in, once, arrived, uh, once he had arrived in Jerusalem, Eichmann was charged with 15 counts of crimes against humanity, war crimes and crimes against the Jewish people. He pled, uh, and I quote, in the spirit of the indictment, not guilty to each one of those. So he didn't just say not guilty. And his, um, his uh, lawyer, who was a German lawyer, um, invited by Israel to provide proper representation, a man called Servatius. He argued that that response meant that Eichmann accepted moral responsibility for his part, but not legal responsibility. And that was the crux of the defense. So they never questioned the facts of the crimes that were being um, contested, but rather stressed Eichmann's duty uh, to his superiors. To, in other words, their defense was that he was following orders, a defense that had already been employed by Nazis at the Nuremberg trial without, without much success. The prosecution, headed by Gideon Hausner, instead portrayed Eichmann as a monstrous figure uh, who single-handedly, pretty much single-handedly responsible for the deportation of hundreds of thousands of people. I think Hausner, in his uh, uh, either in his opening address or in his final closing address, uh, said, you know, addressed the court and said, uh, "Here, here stands uh, someone who was born a man, but then abandoned." Uh, and I'm paraphrasing, right? But abandoned the path of humanity, of civilization, and wandered into the forest with the beasts. Uh, so Hausner's idea was uh, uh, was that Eichmann was less than human for what he had done. Right? Eichmann, unsurprisingly, was found guilty. Uh, he was sentenced to death, and he appealed to the Supreme Court, and that failed. And then and then filed for clemency with the president of the Republic of Israel, and uh, together with letters from his wife and his um, and his uh, brother, and the president of Israel turned down those pleas, and then eventually, early in 1962, Eichmann was hanged, and uh, his body was burnt, and his ashes scattered over the Mediterranean. And I don't know whether this was thought out or not, but symbolically, it meant denying, denying a grave to the man who had been complicit in uh, sending millions of Jews to, to to the gas chambers, and and then to be burnt and themselves denied of, gra of graves. The trial is remembered as one of the biggest international media events of the early 1960s. It engenders a lot of debate and it changes how the Holocaust is understood. Afterwards, it's widely recognised that the concentration camps were not only evidence of general crimes against humanity, but the result of a specific, 
genocidal policy against Jews. It also inspires the philosopher and Holocaust survivor Hannah Arendt to write a series of essays which become the book Eichmann in Jerusalem. In her work, she coins the phrase the banality of evil. Giacomo Lichner speaks about Arendt's interpretation of Eichmann and about the legacy of the trial. The trial showed that Eichmann was not just anyone, but that anyone could become Eichmann, perhaps. And, and that, was, that was a realization that continues to, to kind of shake our, I don't know, our um, faith in, in, in humanity, right? In our ability to, to do good and evil and, and, uh, and all that. And so that, that's a, that, that idea, the kind of trying to understand Eichmann's personality and what it means for, uh, for understanding where evil comes from and why ordinary people can do evil deeds is something that Hannah Arendt, who was a, a German-born philosopher who was uh, following the trial for The New Yorker, called uh, The Banality of Evil, in a very famous book, very influential book called Eichmann in Jerusalem, an essay on the banality of evil. Um, so Arendt doesn't argue really that, that Eichmann was banal as a figure. Uh, she doesn't think his crimes were banal. In fact, she... Uh, she completely agreed with the trial sentence and 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 you know with the fact that Eichmann was fairly um condemned to death she looks at him and reflects on the way in which modernity the way in which um the, the nation state and how um particularly i guess in, first in europe but then elsewhere the state developed to become uh, central uh, to become central to people's identity, uh, had changed the way that individuals related to governments, to the state, to power. And she thought it, it, what was banal was the fact that we had become accustomed to not think. And she saw in Eichmann a good example of that. Uh, so someone who was accustomed to uh, not exercise his own critical thinking, his own independent thinking, but just follow uh, follow the norms of any of whatever society they live in, right? And you know that may actually may or may not have applied to Eichmann because, as we've seen, um, you know Eichmann probably wasn't that ordinary. Like he was, you know, he was involved with Nazism early. He he he, he didn't have an ordinary career. Um, but I think Eichmann, Aaron's point stands. It's 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 uh, quite a sobering thought, right? That um, that if uh, um yeah that that if you remove the person the individual from the act of killing or from uh, you know another evil act um if you remove them enough if you divide the act of killing into lots of small pieces so that one person can do one bit and another one can do one bit and another one can do one bit one person locates the target and another one pushes the button one person sends the victim to the camp, another one shaves them, another one lets them into the guest chambers, and yet another one opens a, a small hole and puts uh, poison gas into it. Who Who is the person responsible for their murder, right? If you, if you do that, if you divide the labor of killing enough, then everybody has a, a, a reason to claim that they're not responsible. 
And I think in that respect, even though she might have misunderstood Eichmann, the idea of the banality of evil is an idea worth thinking about and and kind of yeah, and and a, and a bit of a, a word of warning for um, what modern societies can do. It's been more than 80 years since the Holocaust began. But even after so many decades, it still exercises an eerie power. And maybe that's because it took place on such a huge scale, somewhere so unexpected, one of the most advanced countries in the Western world. What happened in Germany during the Second World War is a reminder not just to follow blindly, but to keep thinking and questioning authority. As for the remorseless Adolf Eichmann, his story ended with his execution in 1962. But it's one which people keep telling and retelling, trying to find an answer. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. Special thanks to our guest, Giacomo Lichtner, a cultural historian of modern Europe, Holocaust historian, and Associate Professor of History at Victoria University in Wellington, New Zealand. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events, and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. Our topic will be the 1961 cult science fiction novel Stranger in a Strange Land, the tale of a man raised on Mars who tries to navigate Earth society. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's NZPODZ, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. By giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service, you help us to share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turning.